I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Glick. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 17th. Coming up, we're going to discuss air, specifically air quality here in Colorado. It's been subject to increased federal scrutiny recently because of our high ozone levels. Our guest is John Putnam, Environmental Programs Director for the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. We begin with a couple of brief science headlines. We've been hearing this so much lately that it's beginning to sound like a broken record. That is, record-breaking temperatures on the planet. Yesterday, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, reported that from June through August of this year, the planet experienced the second hottest summer months in recorded history. And this year is on track to be the third warmest year in the agency's temperature records, which date back to 1880. The five warmest Augusts have all occurred since 2014. August 2016 was the warmest August on record. This year, regions that stood out as especially warmer than average in August included the south-central United States, northern Canada, and eastern Antarctica. That's where temperatures were at least 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above average or higher. And in case you're wondering whether NOAA is continuing to rely on solid science to report weather and climate patterns... After last week, so-called Sharpie Gate appeared to compromise the agency's independence from the Trump administration. The answer is yes, so far. It is hard to argue with a thermometer. And speaking of thermometers, this Friday, September 20th, marks the opening day of the week of hot climate action around the country. Friday events feature a climate strike at various times and locations, including here on the Front Range. The strike and subsequent activities organized by youth activists, but geared for everyone, everyone, are aimed at pressuring the United Nations and global leaders to take bolder action to address the climate crisis. New York City is giving public school students a pass if they want to attend the event. On Saturday, September 21st, the UN will host its first ever Youth Climate Summit, where youth leaders will try to talk some sense into adult leaders and offer some new proposals and solutions. Then on Monday, September 23rd, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is gathering leaders from around the world in New York for some grown-up climate action summit. It's meant to hammer out concrete plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The summit is also aimed to showcase new initiatives by governments, businesses, and communities to increase their commitments to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, with or without the United States, and to work towards reducing emissions to essentially zero by 2050. For information about this Friday's climate strike and related events around the state and country, go to strikewithus.org, and we'll also post some links on our website here, howonearthradio.org. Listening to KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Cooler fall weather might soon bring back the bluebird skies we all love. 
But last year, ozone levels in the Denver metropolitan area were high enough to prompt state health officials to issue ozone action alerts on average of once a week. During these ozone alerts, health officials recommend that children, the elderly, and people with compromised lungs do not exercise outdoors. Today we're joined by John Putnam, the Environmental Programs Director for Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. It's also known by its acronym CDPHE. Before taking this job, John practiced law as an environmental and transportation attorney for 25 years. He represented states, cities, and private companies on a range of environmental issues. Governor Jared Polis named our guest John Putnam to tackle, among other things, a long-standing problem with the state's air quality. Parts of the state have been out of compliance with the Federal Clean Air Act standards for more than a decade. And then last year, the Environmental Protection Agency upped the ante. They declared that parts of Colorado are in serious non-compliance of federal air quality standards for ozone, which we all know is smog. Our previous governor, John Hickenlooper, asked the EPA to delay the serious designation, which would require the state to institute even stricter controls on many industries, including oil and gas and the mining industries. Soon after taking office, however, Governor Polis stated that Colorado would accept the serious designation with some serious consequences for state regulators. We're very pleased to have John Putnam on the show with us to guide us through some of the scientific and political Political haze. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, and good morning, and uh, glad to see it's a low ozone morning with only 30 parts per billion out at Boulder Reservoir this morning. Glad to hear that. Well, let's start on that front with a brief science lesson, shall we? Just help us understand a bit what ground-level ozone is and how it's produced, and it actually has nothing to do with the ozone hole above the Antarctic, right? Uh, it has very little to do with the ozone hole above the Antarctic. So ozone is a molecule comprised of three atoms of oxygen. It's a powerful oxidant, uh, unsurprisingly, given that it's made of oxygen. Uh, but it is a, a powerful irritant and can corrode certain materials. So it's a, a serious public health concern when it's down at the level that we're breathing. So the concern that we have and the standards that the federal government has set relate to ground-level ozone, which is found in the first few thousand feet, usually, uh, of the atmosphere and is the place where we all live and breathe uh, and therefore are going to be most concerned about for our day-to-day activities. Um, Stratospheric ozone, on the other hand, is generally found between 10 to 30 miles uh, up in the stratosphere and is an important um, defense that we have against solar radiation. It intercepts uh, a good chunk of the ultraviolet radiation that's coming in towards Earth, uh, which is obviously critical for skin cancer and other sort of issues. So since human activities were degrading that stratospheric uh, ozone protection down in the Antarctic and Arctic regions, um, we've instituted a number of controls to reduce the chemicals uh, that deteriorate it. So at the same time, we're uh, happy to have the ozone high up. Uh, we're not so happy to have that ozone down below. Right. So, John, um, John, that's, um, you know, for a lawyer, you've got a pretty good scientific vocabulary here. But let's make it clear that ozone here, let's just come back to Earth with the ground-level ozone here in Colorado. It's not actually an emission. I think a lot of people think it's emitted. But it's actually caused by a mix of chemicals such as nitrous oxide and other volatile 
organic compounds that mix with sunlight to produce ozone. Maybe you could walk us through some of the major uh, sources of these ozone precursors. That's absolutely right. Ozone is created uh, when you mix volatile organic compounds, a family of hydrocarbons, um, and oxides of nitrogen, which are largely created by high temperature combustion, um, in the presence of sunlight, uh, with the right temperature and stagnant air that allow uh, concentrations of ozone uh, to increase. So here on the front range, if we've got the two main ingredients being VOCs and we call oxides of, oxides of nitrogen NOx, um, the major sources of volatile organic compounds here on the front range, the largest is oil and gas, which is about a third of our inventory uh, right now, followed by what, by what we call area sources. And those are things like paint use, dry cleaners, uh, other sort of things that are relatively small individual uses but spread out over the front range add up to a significant number. Um, that's followed by on-road vehicles and then non-road vehicles, non-road vehicles being anywhere from small engines uh, in lawn and garden equipment up to big engines, uh, aircraft, locomotives, um, construction equipment. And then where does transportation come in? So transportation is that on-road source. So it's the third largest source of VOCs, but it's actually the largest source of NOx, which is unsurprising because it's uh, the product of high-temperature combustion. So um, currently on-road sources are about a third of our NOx inventory, followed by oil and gas followed by non-road engines, again, the kind of off-road engines, the construction equipment and um, uh, locomotives, aircraft, all of those sorts of things. And then, uh, you know, a surprise and a big area of progress for Colorado over time is in fourth position are what we call point sources, and those are usually big power plants or factories um, or other big sources of uh, uh, NOx pollution. Because we've retired all of the coal plants within the non-attainment area uh, in the Denver metro area, um, that's no longer our dominant source of NOx, and we're back to transportation as being a big driver. Interesting. And before we dive into the biggest source, as you said, oil and gas, just walk us through, since you're there at the Public Health and Environment Department, why should people care so much about ozone? We alluded a bit before, but really, what are the health issues here? Great question. So we care uh, considerably about ozone because of its powerful effect uh, on our lungs. Um, the irritating nature of ozone uh, contributes to asthma attacks, uh, other long-term chronic respiratory effects, and there's at least some evidence that it has an effect on short-term mortality. In other words, uh, it can increase uh, the death rates, at least for short periods of time, um, need a lot more data probably to better understand that effect. But given the challenge and the increased number of people with asthma, um, you know, children, seniors, because we want people to be outside enjoying the outdoors, um, you know, ozone's a significant concern um, from that basis. And, and we just, uh, I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. In addition, I'll say the, the other part that doesn't get as much focus is that um, in addition to irritating human lungs, uh, ozone has a powerful effect on vegetation 
and can affect things like tree growth, um, crop growth, cause damage to leaves, um, both for crops and for uh, trees. And because we're concerned about the overall environment and not just human health, mm-hmm. you know, that's a significant factor as well. Although the kind of limiting factor in terms of the one that we're most focused on right now is human health. Well, getting back to the human health, there was a recent study in uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that seemed to indicate that prolonged exposure to ozone is actually much more um, difficult for people's health than uh, than some of the previous studies, and that it's almost like smoking a pack a day uh, just to live in a prolonged exposure to ozone. Did you see that study? And, and in general, I guess, walk us through what do we know about this and what don't we know about the, the impacts of ozone on human health? It's a great question, and uh, we have new scientific information that comes out um, you know, every month, every year, that kind of deepen uh, our understanding of what the effects of ozone are on human health, along with the other pollutants, particulate matter or nitrogen dioxide, other sort of pollutants that are often found in that same air. And one of the kind of new frontiers that I think we're trying to better understand are what are the kind of um, synergistic effects among or cumulative effects among these different pollutants. And there's research going on uh, about those issues. Um, I have seen the, the JAMA study. I have not had a chance to dive deeply into it. Uh, but it's timely because one of the things that uh, the Environmental Protection Agency is required to do by the clean air is do a periodic review of the standards for ozone to determine whether they're sufficiently protective uh, of both human health and the environment. Uh, and that process has just kicked off. Um, there was a, a plan released uh, just last month by EPA um, that will take a deep dive into the science to understand uh, is the current 70 part per billion standard sufficiently protective of public health or should it come down. The last time that EPA looked at that standard, um, it concluded that there was you know, a reasonable basis to set that standard somewhere between 60 and 70 parts per billion. It set it at 70, which was a, a drop from 75 where the standard had set before. Um, and you know, we now have more and deeper um, information and data available for the agency. Um, we will see the effects that politics may play in that role. Technically, it's not supposed to. Uh, in the real world, we know things happen, and it will be a you know, considerable subject uh, for uh, regulators like myself, for uh, environmental advocates, for industry, for everybody uh, over about the next year and a half uh, as that process unfolds. So I'm curious, what's your guess as to what stance the EPA will take? Some would probably wonder if they'll use this opportunity to raise, not lower, the level. Uh, it's a great question, and my uh, uh, crystal ball is somewhat murky on this front. I think the science suggests that it should stay the same or go lower. Um, you know, one of the challenges with going lower is that we'll start bumping up against some of the um, natural peaks that we'll see during certain times of the year, uh, and so that's a factor that EPA can consider, but I think there's probably still some room for downward movement. That being said, given the number of rollbacks we've seen on other environmental issues um, that the state has had to challenge and comment on, um, you know, I think there is some risk um, that it would go up. That being said, the level of 
court oversight related to the standard and the kind of strength of that science is such that I think any attempt to um, you know move that standard back from 70 to 75 or any other uh, form of rollback um, would be extremely vulnerable in the courts and I think is unlikely but still possible. Interesting. Well, I want to bring it right to your department, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So Dan Glick, my co-host, and I have done a fair bit of reporting on the health impacts of living near oil and gas operations or the fracked operations. And it seems to me that some of the former state officials have been relatively dismissive of the science that suggests some significant public health impacts. I mean, there are several different stories we and others have done, but one back in 2017 when I reported on what the scientific studies have shown regarding the health impacts of living near these operations. And some scientists themselves, NCAR and elsewhere, who study air pollution question whether your department and the executive director, Larry Walk, was actually following the Hippocratic Oath by not protecting the public from the known and potential health impacts from oil and gas development. I mean, do you have reason for concern then and now? So I think our focus right now is at least twofold. The first is we do want to collect more and better information about the health effects um, related to emissions from the oil and gas industry. It's indisputable that it is a substantial contributor to our climate crisis. Um, It's indisputable that it is um, the leading contributor to volatile organic compounds, which then in turn lead to ozone. And, you know, there is some evidence about some of the more localized health effects. That being said, I think our level of data about the levels that people are actually exposed and then connecting that to um, dose response curves. We have some information. I think we have less information um, than we would like. So we're looking to get that information. But at the same time, uh, and especially in light of uh, Senate Bill 181, which is reformulating the oil and gas regulatory environment here in Colorado, our charge is to minimize emissions from this sector. Uh, And we've started that process with a rulemaking uh, that actually will be seeking a a formal hearing from the Air Quality Control Commission this Thursday, um, and we'll uh, use that as an opportunity to propose a rule that will make a significant cut in the emissions from the sector, which will benefit all of those health-related endpoints that we've talked about. But then that would be uh, just the first of, you know, three or four rulemakings that we're anticipating over the next 12 to 18 months to really discharge that mandate from Senate Bill 181 to uh, minimize emissions from this sector. Thank you. Before we dive a little more deeply, uh, we're going to take a little station break. So for those who are joining us late here on KGNU's Science Show, How on Earth, Daniel Glick and myself, Susan Moran, are talking with our guest, John Putnam, about air quality in Colorado. He's the Environmental Programs Director for Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. So, John, we met recently at a presentation by University of Colorado research scientist Detlev Helmig about uh, an air quality monitoring station here in Boulder County at at the Boulder Reservoir, and a number of other top CDPHE officials were there. Uh, I guess the headline from Dr. Helmig's data, if data can have headlines, is that he measured chemical signatures of oil and gas-related emissions in Boulder County, where there are very few oil or gas wells. 
He documented that when the wind blows from the northeast, from Weld County, where there are about 25,000 wells, these emissions spike. When the wind comes from the west, virtually none of those chemicals are present. So Dr. Helmick made it pretty clear that some of these readings are from volatile organic compounds with strong chemical signatures of oil and gas activity. They're also the key building blocks of ozone, as we talked about at the top of the show. I'm curious what your impressions of, of Dr. Helmig's presentation were, and more generally, this question about having enough data to make informed decisions and how science will inform the decision-making and the rulemaking process. A uh, great series of questions in there. So I've um, had the privilege of uh, seeing uh, Dr. Helmig uh, present um, some, or Dr. Detlev um, present data at least a couple times now, and I think what he is presenting on a big picture confirms what we've already known, which is that um, ozone is a regional pollutant. Um, you know, large regional sources of VOCs or NOx will contribute um, to those levels of ozone around the metro area. Generally, what we'll see is that um, pollutants will back up from uh, up in the DJ Basin and primarily in Weld County. That's and the Denver-Julesburg Basin, right? The Denver-Julesburg Basin. And then that will back up against the mountains where it will mix in with a lot of the uh, NOx, the oxides of nitrogen that we're producing, as well as air that's coming in from outside of the state and produce high ozone levels, especially for some of the monitors that are located right at the foot uh, of the foothills. And so that kind of big picture, I think, confirms you know what we've known. When we start getting it down into details, um, what he identifies, I think, are some questions about the adequacy of our inventories. We try to count where all of the emissions are coming from and the levels of those emissions using a variety of tools, sometimes monitors, sometimes assumed emissions values that EPA and other agencies have come out with to try to come up with um, an inventory of pollutants that we plug into very sophisticated models that try to capture um, both the photochemistry but also the movement of all of these chemicals in the air. And having the right inputs into that model is obviously critical to having the right outputs. And I think the question that he's raising uh, is, you know, whether we have the right inventory and whether we're underestimating um, some of those sources of emissions. And the chances are, yes, we are in underestimating to some extent, and we've been working to try to correct that. I think we do in response to uh, having some of those meetings have some technical questions about uh, the details and the precise hydrocarbon species that he was looking at. But the big picture remains we need to have more robust data uh, on the emissions, especially from this source, um, than we do right now so that we can um, you know, make the best predictions in our uh, ozone models, which then lead to hopefully the best policy uh, coming out of that. I will say it's very hard in the oil and gas industry um, because the industry has changed. It's diffuse. It's not like mm -hmm. the Valmont power plant where you've got one big stack where the primary emissions from that coal facility came out and you could have one monitor that would monitor um, those emissions. Here we're dealing with um, you know, literally 15,000 or more uh, discrete sources out in Weld County and beyond, um, each of which emitting in an intermittent kind of different way over time, and then involving, you know, certain 
uh, bigger spikes during the process of developing a well and doing the fracking um, that are hard to capture. And the way that the Clean Air Act was set up was more along the lines of long-term sources like cars and power plants and less on these kind of uh, accumulation of small spikes. And so we're adapting both our science and our policy to better uh, adjust to this uh, critical category of sources. So I'm curious, what's next? I mean, the EPA had said last year, right, that the state was in serious non-attainment. It actually doesn't look as bad this summer, at least on the front range in Colorado from your website data, um, but still hasn't formally made that designation. Where do we stand now and, and where we're going, both EPA and, and your department? So I'll start with EPA. Uh, EPA is obligated under the Clean Air Act um, to review the data and make a determination on whether um, we should be in a serious non-attainment status. Um, the state believes that the evidence is clear um, that you know we did not get the clean data that we needed um, from the monitors to show that we were in attainment and therefore need to be moved to this uh, serious category, which then triggers a number of um, permitting and other uh, restrictions, as you mentioned in the intro to the show. Um, you know, EPA, we are hoping, will make that decision in the next few months. Um, regardless of that, though, the state is really focused on reducing actual emissions, regardless of, you know, what our technical non-attainment status might be or our technical legal status. Um, and so we are engaged in a series of rulemakings. Um, to reduce emissions here on the front range. Um, so starting in July, the Air Quality Control Commission um, passed a rule that's implementing tighter standards on paints, solvents, personal products, uh, other sort of um, products that we have that emit VOCs. Um, think hairspray, think nail polish, um, think paint, cleaning products. Uh, all sorts of things like that. Um, last month, we passed a zero-emission um, vehicle standard that will um, uh, require the manufacturers to sell an increasing percentage of zero-emission vehicles, primarily electric cars, um, here in the state. And then we have a number of rulemakings teed up, but I'll pause a minute in case you've got a question about what we've been up to so far. Well, John, thanks. We actually have a hundred more questions, but unfortunately, we don't have a hundred more minutes of uh, airtime. So I just want to thank you very much for joining us on the show, and we look forward to hearing more about what you and the department uh, will be doing over the coming uh, months. Thank you, and we look forward to your and the entire public's participation in the process to really drive towards clean air. That was John Putnam, the Environmental Programs Director for Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. And we'll add some links on our website, howonearthradio.org, more about this. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show is produced by Susan Moran and myself, Daniel Glick, and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music from John O'Gallagher. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line. That's 303 303- 
847-949-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Glick. Have a wonderful day.